You're listening to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Daniil Yukorsky, blog editor and podcast host at The Hub. And in today's episode, we talk to Justice Stephen Majit of the Constitutional Court of South Africa about the role of the court, the unique history of South African constitutionalism, and its future. The Honorable Stephen Majit is a sitting justice of the Constitutional Court of South Africa. He previously served as a judge for two decades, first on the Northern Cape High Court and then the Supreme Court of Appeal. Before joining the judiciary, Justice Majid was an advocate at the Cape Bar, acting in cases for clients of all backgrounds, taking great pride in the opportunity to represent more disadvantaged people. We are honored to have Justice Majid here with us today to share his experience and insight. Good morning, uh, Daniel. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. And uh, it's always good to discuss with, with others our constitution, uh, which is uh, m- much admired throughout the world, but there are so many challenges, as you would know, that we confront in our country and the constitution is central to that. And we will no doubt explore it further later today. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. So the constitution of South Africa ratified in 1996 marked the legal end of a dark chapter in South African history, the apartheid regime. Yes. As you say, human rights scholars praise the constitution for its generous provisions granting enforceable civil and political and socioeconomic rights, as well as many other aspects. So to start off, how did the shadow of the apartheid regime influence the drafting of the constitution? Thank you. Now, we must bear in mind that South Africa under apartheid had a parliamentary sovereignty system. That meant that the uh, parliament reigned supreme and parliament passed the laws and the courts were bound to implement those laws. The courts had very narrow room within which to challenge laws. If the procedures were properly followed uh, in parliament, there was hardly anything that courts could do to challenge those laws. And so parliamentary sovereignty was the uh, antithesis of uh, of what we have today the supremacy of the constitution now there was a lengthy process that led up to the adoption of the constitution that entailed constitutional negotiations uh, conducted within a framework and once the con- the, the the consultations had and negotiations had been completed there were a framework of constitutional principles agreed upon. And on the basis of that, the constitution was written first, the interim constitution, and thereafter our present constitution. The interim constitution is a 1993 constitution, and the final constitution is our present constitution adopted in 1996. And during the negotiations, the shadow of apartheid and parliamentary sovereignty loomed large. Over the, over the constitutional process. And those who wrote the constitution, particularly those from the liberation movements from the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist Congress, the Black Consciousness movements, were adamant that there must be a complete break from the past, that uh, the ravages of apartheid, which was a terribly oppressive uh, and in the most extreme, a deadly system had to be shaken off completely and so our constitution in its preamble makes very clear that the constitution represents a complete break from the past and it emphasizes certain fundamental concepts 
which is noteworthy and which is significant and calculatedly those include equality, freedom and dignity because those were the three values, uh, constitutional values that were the most brutally taken away from the majority black population by the apartheid regime and I use black in the sense of those who were classified previously as Africans, coloreds, and Indians. So all those who are not white were brutally oppressed and those who drafted the constitution, the constitution made clear that there must be a drastic departure from the past regime. And so now we have constitutional supremacy. The constitution is the supreme law and all laws must comply with it. And the constitutional values represent that break from the past. And so, you mentioned some of the key cornerstone concepts of the Constitution. What are, in your view, the most unique aspects of the Constitution? I should think that uh, the unique uh, parts of the Constitution is that it uh, establishes strong democratic government in three spheres, in uh, national, provincial and local government. It uh, emphasizes those values, freedom, dignity, inequality. And those, those values permeate the constitution throughout those foundational values. It establishes the right to vote to everybody. It establishes importantly, civil and political rights, which are first generation rights, as we call them. Those are, are rights that are firmly entrenched and particularly in the Bill of Rights. And then it establishes importantly, which is rare in constitutions generally all over the world, the inclusion of second generation rights or socio-economic rights. And uh, there is a strong bill of rights, which is entrenched so that it could only be amended. The constitution can be amended through a two thirds majority vote, but uh, the constitution, as far as the fundamental rights are concerned, can only be amended with a 75% of supermajority. And so the constitution entrenches those values. It establishes strong, strong civil and political rights, justiciable rights, and also justiciable socioeconomic rights. And it creates a, uh, a presidency with wide powers. Some, may argue, some argue that the powers are too wide, that there are not enough checks and balances. It establishes a, a strong executive. It establishes a legislature with wide ranging powers and the judiciary that uh, as the third arm of government has the overriding guardianship over the constitution, more particularly our court, the constitutional court as the highest court in the country is the last stop, the, uh, the upper guardian of the constitution, if I may call it that. And the court, again, a subject I think we will discuss later, the court, the court has ensured that its voice is heard, that it, uh, that it fulfills its role as upper guardian, and the courts generally, I think, have a tremendous track record in our country post-1994 in guarding the Constitution. Also in the difficult times that our country has been going through for the last decade or so. And the Constitutional Court in particular has received widespread accolades, standing firm in the face of an onslaught against the Constitution. And uh, that ons onslaught doesn't look like it's going to uh, be alleviated short, uh, in any distant future. Before we turn to the role of the court, which we will certainly discuss. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on a newer emerging trend of critical scholarship about the South African constitution. For instance, 
Professor Joel Madiri argues that the Constitution has failed to deliver concrete historical justice and that it reproduces some of the power dynamics of apartheid. One reason he suggests is that it relies on some of the same Western liberal and capitalist ideals that underpinned past apartheid power structures. So to your view, has the South African constitution been transformative? Well, a constitution is a document produced by politicians. It was negotiated very in very, very hard terms uh, at what we call CODESA, the Convention for Democratic South Africa. And it's very important, and uh, I've noted the critics like Professor Modiri and others who have become constitutional abolitionists. While a constitution is a document, it's not a panacea, it, uh, that is very much a political question. Uh, so what the courts can do, the courts can only work with what has been, what has been produced as the highest law of the land. And so at CODESA, they were hard bargaining and there was give and take. Those are, that's the nature of negotiations. And I think I've seen some of the, not, not necessarily Professor Modiri, but some of those constitutional abolitionists speak of a post-conquest constitution. Well, that is exactly the fundamental misconception. The, the premise is simply wrong. You can't start an argument on a, on a fallacious premise like that. This is not a post-conquest constitution. We must recognize that it is a negotiated settlement between two uh, factions at opposite ends of the political spectrum. Uh, those in power and those who should have the power didn't have it. And so there was a lot of give and take. It was in colloquial language, there was a lot of horse trading. And so the constitution that we have is the product of negotiation. It's not a product of a post-conquest. Nobody conquered anybody. Everybody negotiated to somebody else. And so the politicians must explain why the constitution reads as it does. But as far as I'm concerned, as speaking as an ordinary citizen, it's clear to me that this is not a post-conquest constitution. It's a negotiated settlement. And therefore, you will have elements there that are also in it to to meet the concerns of the minorities and so and so the uh, the courts have done what they could uh with a constitution that's be, that is before us a perfect example is the socio-economic rights uh debate where many people speak of a minimum core and the constitution doesn't have a minimum minimum core concept i mean the constitutional court has rejected that from the very early years because the constitution specifically says in some instances, for example, the right to health and the right to housing, that there must be reasonable measures taken by government and that there must be progressive realization of these rights. And so we can only go with the text of the constitution and apply the text. And so I think the courts have done what they could. There will always be criticism, which is very welcome, but criticism must be based on, on, on proper fundamentals. You can't, for example, speak as I've said, more than once now of a post-conquest constitution, when clearly what we have on the objective facts is a negotiated settlement constitution. And so you spoke to some of the limitations of South African constitutionalism today. I'm wondering what you think are some of its prospects. Uh, it's been approximately 25 years since its promulgation. What do you think the next 25 will look like? Well, I think... Uh... We have, a, we have a hard time ahead of us because the aspirations of the majority who are largely poor uh, and still deprived of many resources 
are becoming louder and louder and the resources are shrinking. The resources are shrinking, the two are related to each other. The resources are shrinking and therefore these demands can't be met uh, even, I think, reasonably because there has been tremendous malfeasance in government over the last, and also in the private sector, I must add, over the last 10, 15 years or more, maybe more. There has been uh, poor governance in a number of respects, and we see it most clearly at the local level where municipal services have ground to a halt and in some instances have completely collapsed. We have an energy crisis, which I understand from what I read, uh, should have been foreseen 15, 20 years ago when government was warned that with the opening up of the economy to all sectors, uh, in all its sectors to the global economy. Previously, it was a pariah, it was excluded, it was isolated. Now the whole world welcomes South Africa. Economic opportunities opened and economic expansion was rapid. That was foreseeable. And government was warned 15 to 20 years ago, I understand that uh, electricity uh, capacity must be rapidly expanded and it, it wasn't heeded and now we said, with serious energy problems which have an adverse effect on the economy. So resources are shrinking, demands are climbing, and so demands on government and on the courts, particularly as far as socioeconomic rights are concerned, will be increasing all the time. And it is uh, those, I think, will be South Africa's biggest problems uh, and challenges in the future. Related to that is the land question. There is this endless debate that you would be aware of, of uh, the constitution being inadequate in section 26 about uh, land redistribution. Well, those matters are definitely going to come to the court. You may know that the attempted amendment of the constitution, uh, particularly section 26, the land issue, did not reach the requisite uh, majority. And so therefore it failed. And so what is on the table now is an expropriation bill, which in all likelihood will be, have to be tested for constitutionality in our court. So uh, the less I say about that, the better. Mm -hmm. But Daniel, I think our greatest challenges in the country for going forward in the next foreseeable future would be socioeconomic rights enforcement and uh, the lack of resources that's coupled with it and the land question. Those, those will be the two biggest challenges for the courts, particularly for the Constitutional Court. Well, that, that's a perfect uh, subject from which to move on to the role of the court, because as you say absolutely correctly, the court will no doubt be involved in, in resolving and, and playing a part in answering some of these questions. But first on a general level, over the years, some justices have expressed their views about the role of the constitutional court as an institution. For instance, Justice Sachs said in Makwanyane that the function given to this court by the constitution is to articulate the fundamental sense of justice and right shared by the whole nation as expressed in the text of the constitution. How would you characterize its role? Well, first, the court is, of course, the upper guardian of the constitution and the, and the court must uh, apply the constitution uh, based on the text before it, but also based on the purpose and the context. And the context we know is a fundamental break from the past, is to increase opportunities for those who have not had it before. And the purpose is to create a, a, a better life for everybody in the country, regardless of race, color, class, gender, or status. And so the court is faced with a constitution which is aimed to transform. And transformative constitutionalism is at the backbone of the court's 
jurisprudence, I would suggest. The track record of the court over the last 20 odd years um, has been, I think, remarkable. And it is pleasing to travel all over the world where knowledgeable people such as uh, professors of high-ranking universities or many chief justices lauded the constitution and the work of the constitutional court. Now the court is restricted by the doctrine of separation of powers. Despite its very wide powers and many people express admiration and surprise at the wide powers that the court has, the court holds uh, the executive and the, and the legislature accountable and has held the president accountable in the so-called Nkanda case and uh, has uh, also held the, pre the a former president uh, liable for contempt and has incarcerated him. Those are wide powers, but the court's powers are not un unbounded. It's bounded by separation of powers doctrine. Colloquially speaking, we must, we must uh, know our place. We must stay in our lane. Uh, I was asked at a recent lecture I gave, but why does the court allow the legislature so much latitude in instances where clearly the, the law is unconstitutional, but the legislature fails in its duties to correct that unconstitutional laws? And, and, and I've explained that quite often the par for the course would be for the court to suspend uh, declarations of invalidity for a period of say two to three years and give parliament time and the space to do its work to correct the wrongs in the bill or in the law that we've identified. And often parliament can't meet those deadlines and we've been generous and extended it where they've asked for extension, where there are good grounds to do so. But the court reaches a point where it reads into laws, where it, where it uh, suspends inval uh, invalidity declaration declarations, it reads into that law the words in the interim as it should read to, to, to cure the deficiency in the meantime. And when Parliament comes back and it hasn't reached the dead, hasn't, hasn't within, the dead, within the deadline set, uh, repaired the damage to the, to the law, so to speak, that then becomes uh, the law. Uh, our order would normally say that unless Parliament amends the law and, and cure the deficiencies, those words read in will be as the law then reads. And so that is all that we can do. And the court's role is, is really one of, of transforming. Uh, just to summarize, is to transform within the parameters of the constitution, but to stay within his lane, to, to recognize its shortcomings, uh, its unelected uh, judges. And they have been appointed, we have been appointed, uh, not to legislate, but to give judgments uh, and to decide cases based on, on the powers that we have. The doctrine of legality is very simple. You can exercise only those powers that the law gives you. And that's true for judges too. So to unpack this question on the separation of powers and staying in your lane, as you say, I think to some listeners, especially coming from the British legal tradition, the way you describe the powers of the court is already very strong and much stronger than uh, parliamentary sovereignty systems would be used to. And as you say, the court is an unelected body. So what would you say is the relationship between public opinion, the so-called will of the people, which is sometimes referred to in uh, Supreme Court judgments uh, elsewhere, and the judiciary? 
Yes, well, the constitution is a product of the will of the people because the constitution was negotiated by those who first, before the interim constitution, uh, negotiated a set of constitutional principles. And then when it came to the interim constitution, particularly the, the present constitution, those were elected representatives of the people. The people who were elected in 1994 were the ones who promulgated the 1996 constitution. And that is the product of the will of the people. That's the first point. The second point is, of course, of course, courts must listen to the people. But listening to the people does not mean that we could chuck out the constitution and its provisions. Listening to the people means complying with their will. And where do we find the will of the people? We find it in the constitution. And so too we find it in the laws passed by parliament. Because remember, I mean I'm stating the obvious, but it's important to make the point that Parliament consists of elected representatives of the people in certain proportions because we've got a proportional system and in proportion to the votes that the, that the parties uh, got, they are represented in Parliament. And so the majority party would always be able to pass laws as they uh, see it uh, as is required by their constituency, which is the majority of the voters in the country. So the constitution and the laws of the land are, represent the will of the people through their elected representatives in parliament. And so that is what the courts do. Courts listen to the people by applying the laws and where the court sees that that particular law falls short of the constitution, which is the supreme law, then the court says so and the court takes remedial measures. The court makes a declaration of invalidity. It suspends the declaration for parliament to correct and it uh, provides for interim relief where it can do so and where it is necessary. And so courts listen to the people within the parameters of the constitution and the law. And uh, if there is dissatisfaction with what the law or the constitution says, then of course it must be amended. The court can't do it. It must be done by the legislature and those who vote must vote for those who they think are able to uh, express their wishes for the amendment of the law or the constitution as the case may be. It's not for the court to do it. I think you correctly characterize both the constitution in its original form and an act of parliament as an expression of popular will or expressions rather of popular will but in in cases where they contradict which i think are uh, the most consequential for the co constitutional court uh right when it's a, a question of potential contradiction between the constitution and an act uh, a legislative act is this a question of listening to popular will or are there other tools that the court is deploying in order to find a resolution? See, well, I, I, I reiterate that the court can only do what it's permitted to do in terms of the law, and the law is the constitution and the acts of parliament, and the, uh, the acts uh, passed by provincial acts passed by provincial legislatures. Court can do no more than that. If, uh, if a law of offends the constitution, then the court says so. Let's take, for example, the death penalty. I mean, the death penalty was outlawed in Makonyana, whether unanimously is also the only judgment that I'm aware of at the moment uh, where the court, each one of those 11 judges wrote. 
And the reason why each one of them wrote was how strongly they felt about the abolition, abolition of the death penalty. And they all came from different vantage points to the same conclusion. Some of it overlapped, of course. But there's increasingly a clamor for the death penalty to return as crime runs out of control, especially violent crime, serious violent crime in South Africa. More and more people are clamoring for the death penalty. Well, the way the Constitution reads, there is no doubt that as the Constitution reads, the death penalty is an inhumane, degrading punishment. And that is why it was outlawed. And so how do you listen to the will of the people asking for the death penalty uh, when clearly that's what the Constitution says? And so I can make many examples. I mean, I recently had a case which I which I, I understand as much discussed is the case of Tubakale, the housing case. I mean, mm -hmm. there I thought that the progressive realization duty on government meant that uh, people with approved uh, subsidies who hadn't received their houses for over 20 years, uh, that by now government has put in place the, the reasonable measures, that's the Housing Act and the Housing Code, and yet nothing has happened, and therefore I thought that in that case, the only remedy that would be adequate would be constitutional damages. And unfortunately, I was in the minority, but that typically is where one listens to the, to the people and say, well, we've, we've done so much, what more must we do? But the court can only do so with the bounds of the constitution, and I thought transformative constitutionalism means that we must ask the question of government, and that is the fundamental question really, Daniel. When we talk about listening to the will of the people, we must ask the question as a transformative constitutionalism-based jurisprudence court. What has government done over the last 20, 25 years to progressively realize the right, for example, to housing, or the right to health, and the right to education? And what we can do in a transformative, on a transformative basis is to say, well, let us show us what you have done. And if we think you haven't done enough, we say, well, go back and do more. That's listening to the will of the people. As I say, we can only do it within the parameters of the Constitution. And that's a typical example, I think. I think uh, our whole conversation has been begging for us to finally move to the subject of socioeconomic rights. Yes. Um, and so maybe just as a recap to listeners who might not be as familiar with, with the jurisprudence, what is the standard applied by the Constitutional Court in adjudicating socioeconomic rights? And briefly, how is it different to some other constitutional orders? Now, I've, I've indicated to you that uh, the Constitution envisages, and, and there's even a third, uh, third generation right, but let me concentrate on the two main ones. Civil and political rights are first generation rights. They are immediately realizable, the right to vote and so on. And then there are socioeconomic rights, uh, they, those are second generation rights. Some are immediately realizable, for example, the right to education, but there are others, the most more important ones, I would suggest, the right to housing, the right to, to health, access to health, and so on, which have to be realized, uh, and, the, and, and the Constitution says, within reasonable measures, and must be progressively realized. In other words, it envisages not an immediate realization of the right, but progressively. And therein lies the rub. Those who criticize the courts, especially the constitutional courts, say, well, you are not moving fast enough. Well, maybe there's a valid point to say that the courts may can possibly move faster, but we can only move as fast as the constitution allows us. 
And that proviso in the socioeconomic rights jurisprudence is the one that is the important one that people must always bear in mind when they criticize the court. The court cannot say that you have to give a house to somebody immediately. And that is typical in the Khrutbom case. In the Khrutbom case, which you will know is the, is the right to a housing case, what the court did there was to say those people, unfortunate people in Wallace Dean, the court looked at their situation and said, well, it's a terrible situation, but all we can do is to say, government, give us your housing plan. And the Western Cape government, uh, the Cape Town municipality gave, it, uh, gave, uh, gave uh, the court the housing plan. The court examined the housing plan and said, well, this is not adequate. And so you've got to go back and fix the plan in respect of A, B, C, D, and E. The court was unable to say, well, give Mrs. Khrutbom and the others like her, the other 5,000, a house immediately, a house that must comply with A, B, C, D, E, and so on, which must have ablution facilities and so on. The court was unable to do that. And so the court said, go back to the drawing board, fix your housing plan, and come back and tell us what you, what you, what you did about it. And that is what happened. But now, 20 odd years down the line, as I say in Tubakali, I said, well, we are beyond Khrutbom. We are now at the point where we say to government, well, the constitution says you must progressively realize this right. Tell us what you've done. And from what I saw in the papers, in my minority judgment, I said, well, you've not done enough. The plan is there. The plan is an excellent plan from, uh, from, uh, from, from my perspective as a judge who doesn't make these policies, pass these laws. Plan seems to me to be good, but you are not implementing it. There's no progressive realizing, realization of that right that Mr. Tubakal and others have to their house uh, on, the, on the eastern part of, uh, of, of Johannesburg. And so, and so within those confines, that is the parameters within the court must move and the court must ask, what are reasonable measures? Are these measures reasonable enough? And B, have these progressive realization of the rights, does that comply with the constitution? And that's all we can do as far as socioeconomic rights are concerned. I, I think you correctly pinpointed the criticism to be surrounding progressive realization and I think your judgment into Akale embodies this criticism in many ways, which is to say the court should not hide behind progressive realization as an answer to why it does not take a firmer line on, uh, on, on the policies of the government. So applying this to other areas, uh, you know, whether it's health or education or, or many of the other socioeconomic issues that unfortunately still plague South Africa, what do you see as a way forward should you once <laughs> hopefully find yourself in the majority? What is the standard that the court should be asking? Uh, I, I understand that, that you would like them to show that actual progress has been made, but I mean in, in slightly more practical terms. What would you like to see in the housing case? What would you like to see uh, in, in other socioeconomic areas? Well, I think... I, I think uh, what, what the court was must increasingly demand for us to to make the to make the to make the rights real because otherwise these socio-economic rights are just rights on paper is to say is to be more critical about what are the reasonable measures you've taken and one would be able to do that where a litigant comes and says well i know that there's a, i'm just making a hypothetical example i'm not saying that this was necessarily the case in, in Tubakale. but the litigant comes and says i'm aware that there's a budget the municipality has for housing. The budget allowed for the uh, development of housing for those of us in this particular area. And we are aware because we've been told that this, uh, the budget has been passed and houses will be erected. 
And so there would be then, uh, the, the court would have, of course, the court can't do that without that kind of prima facie evidence. Once that prima facie evidence is there, the court will say to the, uh, well, first of all, the government, the municipality in the answering affidavit will have to answer that allegations. And then the court will assess with the papers before it, has government done enough in terms of reasonable measures in implementing what it has decided on policy, we are going to uh, create a township here. We have the funds available, and now we're going to put it out to tender. We can't 20 years down the line say, well, you know, this and that happened and so on and so forth. And so, and so the courts will increasingly look at those reasonable measures critically. And secondly, it will look at progressive realization. Progressive realization means that 20 years down the line, there must have been movement, movement forward, not retrogression. Progression means movement forward. And so you will, you will have to demonstrate as a government uh, accused of not having complied with your duties to realize the socioeconomic right in, in question. What have you done over the last 20 years, for example, to realize that right progressively? Show us the steps you have taken to get to the point where the people actually get the houses, where the clinic actually gets the medicine it needs, where, uh, where the school is actually built and so on. And so, and so increasingly, I think the court will have to take a critical view of reasonable measures, on the one hand, and progressive realization on the others. Now, I wanted to add that government will, I think, increasingly rely on the fact that there is that there are inadequate resources. And that will be the next challenge related to the first challenge. To what extent does the court say, well, you've had the budget, you've squandered it, or you have misgoverned, or you have the money simply has been stolen? To what extent can government be excused for, for example, uh, corruption having uh, having played a role in the in, in not fulfilling its function, or there's been misgovernance? I mean, there comes a point where the court will have to say, "Well, that's simply not good enough." I'm speculating now, but I can see that that's going to be the the challenge that's going to arise. Government is going to increasingly say, "Well, we'd like we'd really like to help these people, but we can't. We don't have the resources." And the question would then be, why don't you have the resources? Because you budgeted for it, for example. Yeah, and just to quickly follow up on that, to what extent do you think uh, the court will be able to say, well, if there is a case where the government can prove that for whatever reason, whether it's, as you say, corruption, theft, uh, or simply a, a lack of, of funding, uh, the project could not be realized. To what extent can the court suggest uh, policies to be put in place so that this doesn't happen in the future? That would be the hard case. You see, you could only in, in really extreme cases where the facts warrant it, tell government, well, you've got to amend your policy. Because policy making is the role of the executive. And putting that, that policy into laws is the role of the legislature. It's not the role of the, of the judiciary. I can foresee the hard case, the really extreme case where the facts cry out for the court to say, well, you got to go back to the drawing board and, 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 and amend your policy. Or the court may be able to say, well, you got to find the fund somewhere, funds somewhere else because those funds have been stolen uh, by the very officials who are supposed to serve the people. And so that would be the really hard case, but that would be the extreme case, I, would, I, I, would, I should think. One would often find a situation where government would, for example, say, Look, the funds that were budgeted for, we had to apply for it to an emergency situation, for example, where we've had floods, like happened in one of our province recent, provinces recently, in KwaZulu-Natal on the East Coast. 
in a case like that, uh, one would hardly see a court saying, well, you can't do that. You, you gotta, you gotta apply these funds here. So that would be the easier case or government would come and say, well, the pandemic, uh, the coronavirus, uh, and the, uh, and, and, and the pandemic has, has forced us to, to, to divert these funds elsewhere. Uh, for example, for emergency health measures. No court, I think, in his right mind would say, well, you can't do that. But the really hard case, the extreme case would be where government says, we admit that either we'd misgovern, misgoverned, or the thefts, the funds have been stolen, or, or both. And there the court may be in a position, I put it no higher than that, the court may be in the position in the right case with the right facts to say, well, that's not good enough. You had all the means to progressively realize this right. You've acted unreasonably in not doing so. And so, and so we order you to do X, Y, Z. And the order may not be in particular be, be that you are uh, ordered to amend your plan, or your policy. The order may be that you're in contempt of a previous court order. The order may be that you have to pay constitutional damages coupled with uh, an interdict, uh, an interdict, a supervisory interdict where the court says, from now on every three months or every six months, you must come back and report to us what you are doing to, re to remedy this. And just to go back to, uh, you mentioned the, the COVID pandemic, there will be many cases where government has two reasonably competing interests. So during COVID, you had freedom of movement, uh, uh, economic freedoms balanced against right to life, right to health. Everybody, I think, now understands that there were many places to, to draw that line. And it's very difficult to say that there was one correct one. And I think you you suggested, and I would agree that this has to be a, a role uh, fulfilled by government, public bodies acting through the will of the people. But what is the role of the court in such situations where there are two competing interests? How does it ensure that it doesn't just become a rubber stamp and, and be completely deferential when things get difficult, when, when the problems are real? Well, that's a very good question because uh... COVID and the pandemic has demonstrated to us how competing rights, particularly in a global emergency like that, uh, have to be very carefully weighed. Of course, we would like to have people have their freedom of movement and so on. But uh, there comes a point where you have to make a choice. And so when the uh, national hard lockdown started in South Africa in March 2020, when the president announced that the whole country will be under lockdown and, and, and a strict lockdown. The court, I can tell you, was flooded with many, many applications for direct access to have this ban lifted on the basis of freedom of movement and freedom of choice and so on, freedom of uh, economic uh, activity, trade and so on. But then, and then there were those, the most extreme ones uh, that said, well, there's nothing like a coronavirus. The virus doesn't exist. This is a grand conspiracy of big pharma, uh, of the banks. And then you have government answering in that affidavits, giving us all these reports of renowned scientists who have been globally acknowledged for what they've achieved, uh, virologists and so on. And you read these documents and then you say to yourself, well, <laughs> I'm a lawyer, who am I to second guess what eminent professors and virologists tell us? 
And there is a perfect example where we had to bow to the superior knowledge of those experts, not rubber stamping, but critically analyzing it and coming to the obvious self-evident conclusion that government was right. And with the benefit of hindsight, of course, government was right. It's the same thing now with the vaccination. There are many anti-vaxxers that come to court and so on. And again, uh, the experts tell you that uh, vaccination is, is the way to go. Uh, people may have their views, but if government uh, takes a particular position and that stance is undergirded by solid uh, empirical evidence from renowned experts, then of course you must make a choice and say, well, this right must be uh, limited in terms of this other uh, in terms of this other law. And so during those cases, we were flooded, as I say, with challenges to the uh, emergency regulations, but we, dis we dismissed all of them. We dismissed it on the basis, I can tell you that the court would rather like you to start in the high court and then go to the appeal court. The court doesn't want to be court of first and last instance. But that decision was reinforced by the fact of that strong empirical evidence. If there had been any strong empirical evidence to the contrary, I could see the court saying, well, we must intervene here. This is a travesty and uh, we must grant direct access. But we didn't because uh, the evidence was quite strong. And then I can make an, another example. And again, that case may come to our court on appeal because the appeal court has decided that the tobacco regulations, the regulations outlawing cigarettes and so on, uh, was irrational. I'll say no more than that because otherwise I'll prejudge the issue and I don't want to have to recuse myself when the case comes. All I can say is that the appeal court has demonstrated there that it's not mere, a mere rubber stamp. The appeal court there has shown, at least for that court, I can't speak for it, but based on its judgment, it says the tobacco, regu the regulating of tobacco products is irregular, irregular, irrational, served no purpose at all. Uh, the means selected uh, banning tobacco products did not is not rationally connected to the end in other words to protect people against the pandemic so so that's a typical example where a court is not merely a rubber stamp i think i'm curious if i may maybe both of those examples don't really test that case uh and maybe it's difficult to frame one that does because on one hand of course, the, the first hurdle is, is rationality. And, and in the case of the COVID pandemic, it, it's clear that the policy was not manifestly irrational. And the same thing with tobacco, at least uh, to a certain extent, I'm sure the parties will have arguments as to say why the regulations are there for good reason um, and the courts shouldn't be interfering with them. What I'm wondering is what happens in a true balancing of rights case, so to speak. So maybe if the the shoe is on the other foot, so to speak, and the South African government decided that they had economic experts that testified to the economic impact of closing business and decided not to lock down at all, and a petitioner came with the evidence of virologists, and again, I don't want to put them on the same footing, uh, but just as a, as a hypothetical, you know, the petitioners and, and, and governments will always have their own kind of evidence. What are some of the tools that you personally as a judge and, and more broadly as uh, the court, the institution, uses when there are two very legitimate competing claims? Now, our constitution doesn't have a hierarchy of rights, so every case will be have to be assessed on its own facts. 
And we did, in fact, have in the pandemic uh, economists or, or, or trade bodies coming to us, for especially the hospitality industry. Uh, the hospitality interest in the restaurants and guest houses and hotels came and liquor associations came and say, well, we are suffering terribly and we need to have some sort of leeway. And yet the courts stood firm against it because public health interests superseded because there was direct competing rights, of course, the right to economic activity and to trade freely and so on as against the right to public health. And uh, in that case, it was very clear that public health interests superseded those of the economic interests. That was a typical example. And so every case will have to be assessed on its own facts. A typical example is the Subramoni case where Mr. Subramoni wanted dialysis. And the court there looked at the bigger picture. The court said, yes, Mr. Subramoni, we'll be able to help you, but that will be to sacrifice the greater good for the individual. In other words, if we make that order, we set a precedent that all persons in your position, Mr. Subramoni, will have to receive urgent dialysis, whereas the resources, as the government showed, persuasively can, should, can, be, should, can and should be, be put to better use for the greater good to afford dialysis treatments for the vast array of people who needed it, not on an urgent basis, but on a continuous basis. And that's a typical example of competing rights where the court makes an assessment and say, well, you've got to make an assessment and say, what is for the greater good? And it's again the same with the pandemic. What was for the greater good? Are we going to uh, assuage this group of industrialists and hospitality industry people and liquor associations, as opposed to the greater good, the general public, with a, with a virus that was ravaging uh, uh, the world uh, and having devastating implications for the health of people. And uh, I think truth be told in uh, with the benefit of hindsight, it's always a perfect science. The government was right to have the hard lockdown. I mean, our fatality figures, although some people say they are wrong, our fatality figures do not really reach those of other, of other countries. Just to close with a couple of uh, slightly more personal questions. I was wondering, how would you characterize your role as a judge within this institution and within this polity? And how has it been shaped by your previous experiences, uh, most notably the liberation struggle? Well, Daniel, you know, I come from a background where I don't know how much you know about my background, but I'm black. I'm a South African. I uh, have an interesting history in that I'm a descendant from, as far as our history could be traced, I'm a descendant from slaves who came from the island Java, which is now part of Indonesia, came to slaves, Malay slaves to the Cape. And uh, the first people of South Africa, the southern part anyway, the indigenous people of South Africa, the Khoisan, they were hunter-gatherers. And uh, the three slave brothers that came here was uh, named Majid, although they still spell the last name like I do now at the moment. One of the brothers, after slavery was abolished, moved inland, married a Khoisan woman, and that I'm the product of that union, a Malay slave and an indigenous person. So that's my history, and uh, you would know that I was deprived under apartheid. Uh, and that has shaped my, my being as a judge and as a person. Because judges are not robots, we have our own predilections, we have our own likes and dislikes. 
and we have our own subjective feelings we are we as i say we are not robots and so that those will show in our judgments and i've said in many of my interviews as a, to be appointed as a judge that i always have empathy for the underdog and i think it shows in my judgments it is uh, a disposition to help those who can't really help themselves within the confines and the parameters of the law, of course. And so, and so my inclination is for the oppressed, for the underdog, for the, in inverted commas, the little guy, stroke girl. Um, and, so, and so that is where I come from. I think my role as a judge is to help transform society within the parameters of the constitution. To serve our people to the best of our ability, to remain humble, to work hard, to work honestly, to make South Africa a better place because it's a country with so much potential, it's rich in resources. But I think South Africa's greatest resource is its people. And, and so I think to realize that potential, all of us must do our bit. And I'm privileged to sit in the highest court in the country and I see my role as helping people realize the rights that are there enshrined in a beautiful constitution amidst huge challenges which are only going to become worse i think within the next few years i can think of no better place to end it thank you so much for your time uh it has been an honor and a fantastic education well let me just end by saying that it's been a privilege and i look forward to more interaction with oxford in general but also with you guys in future and so i hope it won't be the last that we uh, participate with, with oxford and I wish all of you well, and thank you for this opportunity. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Megan Campbell. This episode was produced and edited by Sophie Smith and hosted by Daniel Yukorski. Music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Dobby. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you'd like to listen to your favorite podcasts.